internet friends. If you're in the US, happy 4th of July. And if you're checking in from elsewhere or at a different time, I hope that you are having a fantastic day. Welcome to Full Stack Whatever. I'm your host, Michael Lomans. Today, I'm talking with Cameron Kozon. Cameron is the founder and CEO of Fictive Kin and the co-creator of a conference called Brooklyn Beta and a conference called Kinfriends. I'm excited to bring you this conversation because Cameron has had a significant impact on a pocket of the technology and design industry. I always love hearing his thoughts and it's a privilege to have him here. We talked about the state of technology, the state of design within those technology businesses, and many more things. Here is episode 24, Spider-Man with the Venom Suit. Hey, Cameron. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here on this uh, config day one, where we both just stood in the hallways and talked to people. Yeah, it's nice though. It's really nice. I think the little group that started growing was like a little Brooklyn beta type. Oh, absolutely. We all know each other. And you're, it's getting a little bigger. And then I think by tomorrow, it'll be full swing. So yeah. I always feel like day one for a conference is slow. Everybody's getting their bearings. And that place is really big, so hard to find people. But now I think we're on the right path. My big morning query to myself was, do I want to be here? Mm. I haven't seen anyone yet. And I've been here for an hour. I guess I should mingle if I want to see people. Where do I go? Yeah. And then one of my friends was like, there's an espresso bar. And uh, I spent the next six hours at the espresso bar. Yeah, brilliant. Didn't even have an espresso. Just everyone just came by, <laughs> which was pretty great. I'm really excited to have you on, on the podcast. I think that it's going to be really interesting to hear like your take on a lot of different things. And so uh, most well-known, in my mind, at least for Brooklyn Beta, originally yeah. claimed the fame. Yeah, Brooklyn Beta was something that kind of came out of Fictive Kin, which is this design and engineering studio that you've been running for the last 15 years. Uh, it's, it's a collaboration between myself and Chris Shiflett and so Fictive Kin. And at the time he was doing a, a company called Analog and then we kind of merged together as one. So oh, it became nice. more Fictive Kinny over time because we were all one company. But it really started out as Cameron and Chris went to a conference in New York. I believe it was a future of web design mm-hmm. and it was not very good. Instead, we we ducked out and went to a bar. We were just getting to know each other, becoming friends and just said, well, we can probably do it a little better than this. Yeah. So that was the backstory. And and so you did. I do think we probably did. Because it became a legendary five years. Well, yeah, but that's <laughs> it was yeah. nice. Yeah. It's pretty great. And yeah, I mean, you're still a fictive kin. There's a couple of other things. There's this CTO at marketplace.city and co-founder at Logger Data yeah. in there. So we're probably mosey between those things. But I really want to dig into the Brooklyn Beta thing. Actually, most recently, you hosted Kinfriends, yeah. which was not really a Brooklyn Beta reboot, but kind of felt that way, Yeah, which so was really nice. Principles, but just trying to leave that because there's reputation there and that comes with a lot of baggage. So trying to just do some of the same stuff, but fresh and also recognizing that, you know, like when we did Brooklyn Beta, the slogan was make something you love, which I don't think I could with a straight face look at somebody and say that today. It feels a little twee and a little bit, you know, especially for folks that are in their 30s and 40s who've been doing this for a while. I think it's just a different psychology. And so trying to say, well, let's not try to bring any of that with us. But yeah, same principles. The lineup wasn't known until day of. Yeah. Didn't get posted until 11 a.m. even like after the first talk was already done. Yeah, I think right before each talk, we would post it. At least that was the plan. I think that happened on day one and on day two, then it like, boom, went yeah, out the first time. Yeah, maybe a little lazy. But I mean, I think that was great. Uh-huh. One of the important things that I've learned from you is never skip the first talk. Oh, yeah. Always show up for the first talk. Even if you're hungover, always try to show up for the first talk because you never know what that first talk is going to be. Yeah, and it's you, always worth it. Yeah, I, th- I think, well, we're at least considerate 
in that we don't start until typically 10 a.m. I mean, we know why we're there. We are the excuse for getting together. This is the same thing with Brooklyn Beta and it was the same thing with Ken Francis. It's not about us and some self-glorification. It's literally like if nobody does it, like we, we stopped in Brooklyn Beta and nobody was doing an event. And so we weren't getting together. There are people who I've only seen in the last year simply because did the work to like make a new conference. And so just remembering that means that we know people are going to go out late at night because they're going to enjoy each other's company. So why try to get everybody? It's not school. I try to get them there first thing in the morning. So yeah, we started like 10 a.m. Maybe we started at 1030 on day two or something like that. I can't mm -hmm. remember, but at a time where I could reasonably, you know, stay out late and still make it there and be a, a human being, which is nice. So yeah. When you kicked off Kinfriends, the first thing that was on a slide was this is more of a summit than a conference, mm -hmm. which I think is a really nice distinction with conferences in general. This is a place for us to come together. Yeah. And this is the excuse for us to come together and we'll have some awesome programming as well. Yeah. But the excuse is the leading act. And on one of your following slides, I think you had this really powerful statement that said design has been systematically disempowered over the last decade. Yeah. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I can go into that a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was not, I'm not a designer by trade. I'm a business person, is what I would say. And I have the credentials for a business person. I have an economics major and I went to Stanford for business school, which is one of the good ones. My professors were Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google, Andy Grove, who was CEO of Intel, Andy Ratcliffe, who's the guy who coined the term product market fit. And while I was there though, the D school, as it became came to be known, was like getting started. So we were really early in that. And in fact, one of my classmates, I believe her name is Sarah, is I think even still today, like the head of the D school. But my first exposure to design was there. And so it immediately clicked with me. And I was like, this is a really big deal. This is a super important part of these things called digital products. And so I, I, you could think of me as like a fanboy. And I came in and, and with Brooklyn Beta, Chris is an engineer. And we were just trying to point out that like, let's bring designers and engineers together. You don't need business people or things like that. Especially designers needed that like feedback, make your own stuff. And I don't really know what happened. Um, the way I describe it is business people who I think are sharks, like really it's a skill to be a shark, figured out this new label called product. And they put that above design and I think just took it. And there's this idea that some of it's true that stereotypically designers can be overly sensitive or not tuned into business concerns. But I think that's weaponized. And I think that by and large, the concepts are relatively easy to understand and business people just wanted that authority. And so design as a group seems to me from bigger companies, it's not the way we run our company, but when I look around and some of my most amazing designer friends, they report to people that I would consider to be less capable, less vision, fewer ideas, but a bigger title and most likely considerable more pay. So I don't really know exactly how they pulled that off, but they really did. And maybe I'm attributing it to business people. I don't know who the villain is here, but you know, an MBA is often a, re a requirement for becoming a person, an early product career. But I have an MBA and a good one, like I was saying, and there's nothing I learned there that would at all equip me for having a thought about product. That's at least the high level. When you look at an environment where that wouldn't have happened, or like when you look at an environment that is like maybe more ideal to you, where there's like more empowerment back on design, what does that look like for you? I think that the sort of original sin of businesses is this idea that a company is beholden to its shareholders. Mm -hmm. And so 
that is a way. And there's all these loads of B corporates, this, but I've never seen those actually practically do anything. The fundamentals are a company has to get more all of the time. And it can't have this idea of enough. And I like this idea. We'll talk about it internally as like a Basta business. Basta is Italian for like, it's enough. And enough is a feast. That's like a Buddhist philosophy. Like there's this idea that enough is not enough. And in fact, we need the most. And you'll see that like, take a company like Netflix. Netflix is a company that espouses maybe we're like for the consumer, da 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 consumer experience until they need to make more and they, they can't feed on new customers. So they turn around, they start eating their own customers. And now if your kid's away at college, you're not going to be able to share your login with them. And you're going to like, just, there's just things that are so anti your own customers that come from this sort of core ideology. And I think this need for more, the need for the most is a financial motivation. And I'm not against financial motivations, but it's a warped one. And it's probably responsible for all the crap that people talk about, like loneliness, a lack of human connection, all of these things that we're seeing, I think you can trace back to the way companies are operated. And additionally, the way that venture capitalists are compensated and motivated and, and things like that. For me, designers are a more, you'll hear the word heart-centered a lot. So I don't know if I'm using that right, but to me, that's like a connection. It's like, these people actually care. They care about the experience. They care about the end user. And of course, I think that they want to make money. They want to do this thing, but that's not the ultimate. They would start with the experience first and then monetize from there. And I think there's a difference. And I don't think that it breaks capitalism to approach it that way. It just breaks this style of, of capitalism to do it. Um, and so it's easy to put it in a, a little league. Oh, you're just, oh, isn't that quaint? Isn't that cute? When actually it's extremely radical to prioritize in this way. I think there's something really interesting. You mentioned the loneliness piece. And then there's obviously the fact that Brooklyn Beta brought together a lot of like-minded folks yeah. Kind of in, in an alpha stage. And I think 2010 was the first one. Sadly, I missed that one. Yeah. But then when it was very clear that there was a need for this, it stayed very similar, only just slightly growing for the following four years. And then there was like, or three years. And then there was kind of like a big, a big one, a big bang. Yeah. Where do you look at the impact that you've had, at least with beta? And then also ma mentioning that like post-COVID, you wanted to bring your friends together again for Kinfrance. Yeah. And against that loneliness piece, is like the is the loneliness theme like something that you think about a lot? Or is this just a kind of a part of the thesis of we have too many sharks that are like trying to define product? Well, the, the sharks thing wasn't existing then. I, I felt like when we were doing Brooklyn Beta, it was just like telling somebody the positive things that they needed to hear that they weren't hearing elsewhere. It's like, hey, there's no limit on what you can do. And you might have been raised within a graphic design tradition and seen those career paths, but there are totally different career paths available to you. This thing called a startup is like totally available to you. Why not? Like, you know, I, I heard a story of a designer friend of ours, a well-known designer, and I'm confident that the product that he worked on was in in a big way successful because of him. And I asked him, I said, well, how, what's your equity ownership? This would be 2009, 2010. And he said, I have X thousand shares. And I said, well, okay, well, but how many shares are in the whole company? And he didn't know the answer. And the, all that tells me all I need to know is he's getting screwed. And in the end, the company sells for plenty of money and he gets enough to buy like a minivan. And when somebody's talking to you in number of shares, a lot of times, then they're pulling the wool over your eyes because it's really percentage that matters. And so that's the kind of thing where I was just like, the education is just not there that like you deserve more. You're being mined as a resource. Just mind yourself. Do that for yourself. Loneliness. I've never really had a problem with loneliness and um, it's coming from a really big family. And I think it's on the opposite side. Instead of trying to be avoidant of loneliness, I have an appreciation for community. And I, I think I'm very comfortable in communal situations. 
I actually prioritized most of my life around it. So I think it came naturally in, in that way. I don't think there was any real clear plan. I think it was probably a friendship between Chris and I coming alive because I had just moved to New York, combined with a little bit of a feeling of, well, we can do better than this. I can't believe all these poor folks. That conference, I had a free ticket. Tina Roth Eisenberg gave me a free ticket um, and asked me to take notes so she could write a blog about it. So I took notes for the parts that I was there. But people were paying like $1,000, $1,200. Yeah. Yeah. And people were getting up giving talks about things that were blog posts that they had written a week before. And I was like, I just read your blog post, man. Like, you don't need to like then talk to me for 50 minutes about a blog post. I'm going to die. Don't do this to me. I'm a good person. <laughs> uh, so we can approach this from a much more like human way instead of just taking a model. I think people oftentimes, they look at what's there and they go, well, this is how conferences are done. We'll do it that way. And instead, we just go like, what's the experience? Is that what are we trying to do? What are we trying to bring? What do people need? What are we hearing from our friends that we can like extend outward? And you mentioned the first one, only like a hundred people were at the first one. You know, you, you probably, even if we had invited you, you might not have even wanted to come because we're coming out of nowhere saying that there's going to be this event and we're not telling you who's going to speak. And part of that, actually, this is a happy accident is we didn't have our speakers figured out, right? So it turned out the first time we did it was by accident because we weren't ready. But then after that, we we're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, we're never going to do this again. We didn't have Wi-Fi because we had heard from speakers that this doesn't happen the same way these days, but people used to show up and like open up their laptop. And now you're speaking to a sea of laptops, which was like really depressing. So we've went through all these things and made changes based on all the stuff that we had heard. Anyhow, that's one of those long rambles. That's um, an attempt to answer that. I want to put it slightly in context because you started Fictivekin in 2008. Yeah. And Beta was in 2010. Mm-hmm. Fictivekin is 15 years old. Yeah. Chris and Analog joined a while in and then now yeah. he's working on faculty. And he's doing another thing now called Matter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great. Can you talk me through like the different eras of Fictivekin? Because I bet that there's three, four or five of them. Basically. Yeah. Era one was probably before I did a startup after business school with some high school friends of mine. When you do a startup, it's weird. It's like a drug in a way. And people act like they're famous rock stars or something like they get on some of those <laughs> airs, but they haven't done anything yet. You know, all you've done is raise a little bit of money. And now we're trying to make something. But I, I had two experiences, one where I worked with some friends in hardware and I really enjoyed working with those friends, but I couldn't really get my head around the hardware. And then I did something with the digital product and with friends that I didn't like. And between those two experiences, I said, well, now I know I like working with friends on digital products. And I was fortunate enough that startup that I was at, the investors bought me out. I had negotiated for a nine month um, vesting schedule. So I ended up with probably about 6% of the company after nine months. And they were riding high then. They were pitching to Carlos Slim and all these things. And the investors bought back my equity for enough money that I was able to hire all my friends and start this thing called Fictivekin. So, and it started out as a startup. Our initial product was this thing called Gimme Bar, which- Oh, yeah. 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 Which is like Pinterest. And we didn't copy Pinterest. Pinterest went live like three months before us and they immediately took off like a rocket ship. But mm-hmm. it's a need that was there. I, I learned some good lessons in that. But phase one was trying to do Gimme Bar. We made a really cool product, but we were behind because the competitor was just smoking us. And when we went to go raise funding, they would say, Pinterest is growing faster than Facebook grew when it went live. So how are you going to catch up with that? And I would just say, you know, I don't know. It's a great question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I actually felt philosophically we were doing something different. They were trying to have these inspiration boards and we were trying to be a little bit more of like a utility. This is where you're going to save more stuff. They were images only. We were doing text and videos and maps. We were doing like tons, which is actually a mistake from a product design standpoint. But anyhow, did that. And then that was like era one. In our fundraising process, we got connected with Betaworks. Era two is we're working with Betaworks. 
the theory there was they're going to be Disney to our Pixar and we're going to get to work on cool products and they're going to be the distribution and they're going to get that out there. It didn't really work that way for a bunch of reasons. I mean, good relationship. I don't know that they loved our product ideas. And then also, I don't know that they have those distribution chops exactly, or they didn't then. Also, while we were there, they launched Dots and Giphy and they bought Dig. So they were pretty quickly distracted. So we were sort of like not as much of a priority. Mm -hmm. And then I just was like, well, I keep putting us in situations where we're trusting other people. I don't really feel like doing that anymore. So let's just start a little agency and let's just, instead of having one boss that sort of can tell us what to do, let's just have a variety of bosses and we could fire them if they're no good and we can, we can do this. So did agency for a while and there's a bunch of little sub eras in there, but that's the gist. And so now, like to this day, Fictive Kin, you do agency work. Do agency work. We're 50-50, I would say, in terms of the time spent between agency and internal projects. So we have a to-do list app that we co-founded with the Tina Roth Eisenberg, who I mentioned before, Swiss Miss. We have tried other things. I was basically trying to avoid venture capital. So I'm like, we'll make our money in agency and then we'll funnel it over here. And then that's how we're going to bootstrap ourselves. But man, that's really difficult. An agency is a hungry animal and it wants your attention all the time. And I, I, there's one point where I was like, this is like a story that bugs the shit out of me. We, we were working on this like social calendar project and we called it IRL and we had done a ton of work. We had built so much. We had built this super powerful app, did tons of stuff. And we just never got around to launching it. We were just trying to find the right time because we were dealing with client projects going back and forth. And while we were doing that, Kleiner Perkins funded a social calendaring app called IRL for 11 million bucks. And we had IRLCal.com and they bought IRL.com. And I was like, we know we have the judgment. You know, we, we had the idea right down to the name and they, got, they raised 11 million bucks, but we were so distracted with this other thing that we couldn't get to it. So mm-hmm. we sort of reformatted how we think about some of that since then. Wow. And so yeah. you never launched it? Never launched it. And we were, if you saw theirs, we were more fully featured, in my opinion, considerably better designed, mm-hmm. but without $11 million. So, and, and without a launch. Yeah, and without a launch. <laughs> without eyeballs. Yeah. 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 There's something tricky about the, a social calendaring app because it's like Pinterest. Every time somebody shares something new, you're building up a repo. It gets bigger. When it comes to events, the events expire every single day. So you're on a treadmill from second one, which mm-hmm. is something we didn't intuitively grasp when we were working on it, but it kept holding up launch because we'd come back and we're like, no, these events are expired and all, all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, yeah, never launched it. Yeah, like the lack of network effect is like this is a big issue, right? One of my biggest gripes with Facebook as a company is that I feel that there was this apex moment mm-hmm. when the network was very large that could have been the ultimate conversion into utility because Facebook events was like the biggest events management tool by a mile yeah. on all of the internet. Yep all of that utility started fading away when the network started like falling apart. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter if you post your event to Facebook now because no one's going to see it anymore. Yeah. So you're not going to do it. So you need a new tool now. And so now you need to like have a new vendor for a new tool. You need to inject all of your contacts into that new tool. There's just a lot of manual work. For better or for worse, that is something that you have to do now. But there, there was this moment at a certain point where why would you need Yelp, Foursquare, all this kind of stuff when you could just see all of your friends' data? We could have all put it together. And this is my other gripe. We had the public API era oh, yeah. of you know, 09, 10, 11, 12, where we were okay connecting our APIs oh, yeah. for a while and creating value out of that. And right now, in this moment, we are in the post-Twitter API shutdown, post-Reddit API kind of yeah. monetary land grab. I mean, my, I blame Twitter for the state of the internet 
because they were the poster child of a more open web in a very short-sighted way. They decided to nix that all at once. And if they had stuck with it, I bet you they would have gotten compound gains on it in a way that would have been a real meaningful contender for Facebook and could have shown this philosophy can work. But they gave up without any fight whatsoever. And so we have nobody to really showcase that style of doing the internet. So I kind of blame them for that. And then the internet is an incredible invention. And the internet connected every human being together. It is a human achievement. It's incredible. We call it the web because now there's this, you can you imagine it as this really thin line connecting you to everybody else in the world. Or you could think of it like if you're a kid in an old timey movie, those two cups on the end of a string and you're talking yeah, to yeah. each other, right? Yeah. But we're not connected. We did something beautiful and we said, okay, what are we going to do with that? And along comes people who basically they grab one of those lines and they put up a well-fortified bridge. Unfortunately, over and over again, the wrong people are in charge of those bridges. So we have decrepit bridges with huge tolls and people get fucked by it. And so to me, Facebook got so many of those lines and has laid down bridges that they're just suffocating humanity. There's a couple of things that you just made me think of. Like one is this thing where, yes, there is the the, the more bigger business philosophy and the shareholder value creation, but there's also a question that I've been thinking about for the last five years, which is when is something done? Oh yeah. And if you look at Maps, like Maps is a great product, yep. predominantly because it was a great product five, 10 years ago. Absolutely. And in between, I've seen some engagement experiments. I've seen the explore tabs come yeah. out. There, it was actually a, funny to me because I always try to steer interviewees to critique maps with me. Mm. And we would do like a 30, 45 minute critique of maps. And so throughout my time of doing this over the course of the couple of years that I did it, Maps was perpetually changing. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes cool. I would open it up and I'd be like, oh my God, there's a new thing in here. Yeah. But I have to hold my poker face <laughs> and really show them that this is new and interesting and we need to talk about this thing. But at the core of it, like the products stay the same. Yeah. And and God knows how many hours I've gotten in to cranking on the OKRs for that oh, yeah. product, even though it hasn't really changed. Yeah. And the same I feel about Spotify, for example, like a whole new Spotify is happening. And yeah. yeah, God knows what's happening with that. The sole reason I thought Spotify in my mind won over audio for me was it plays as if this file is on my computer because mm. it's real fast. That was the whole thing that mattered. And ever since, it's just all this additive stuff that probably doesn't really matter as much as the other stuff, right? I mean, Spotify, if you were to look at the product decisions, you would say nobody over there cares about artists or fans. Mm -hmm. What they care about is algorithms and like they infantilize people. If you care about like your playlists, there's a thing right now that the newest upgrade that pisses me off so much. Before the newest upgrade, I had my playlist in an order of my choosing. I can put it in a fucking order that I want because that's the order I want to get to it. It's not alphabetical. It's not when I made it. It's the order I like to be in. That goes all the way back to iTunes, all the way back to Winamp, you know, that kind of thing. I can do that. They took that away. They put it in some random ass order. They do. If you were to make a folder, so you can make a folder that holds playlists, which I yep. do, you can go into that folder and it'll say, you can organize that the way you want, but they just don't want you. It's like their feedback to you is, stop trying to control this experience. Mm -hmm. Like we'll tell you what's good. And to me, like no musician who listens to music would listen to music like that. No music fan would operate like that. What they're just saying is like the least common denominator thing. And one of the biggest disappointments of the way the world works, they don't have to do shit to compete. And if there was an open API 
to all music. And if you wanted to make an app, you had to pay the same fees that Spotify is paying. We would have such interesting, abundant music interfaces and approaches for different people. There would be so many priorities around that would be shifted. And I think to the benefit of everybody, but again, they got the bridge and there's no chance of getting through. On the one hand, I like your point, stuff should be done. And sometimes it should be done. You're the best person to that, Dropbox. Should have been done a long time ago. They're like, we could be more. It's like, don't. We love you exactly the way you are. Yeah. Please don't change. And they're like, ah, eh, we're going to change. Yeah. <laughs> like, All right. And we just go along with it. And then now what, what are they to anybody? You can make a separate business. Try your experiments with a separate business. Don't try to make it all fit under one thing. But also I wish things like had to be done in the same way that I wish there were term limits in most political positions. I wouldn't mind like a timeout for, <laughs> I know that's, that's product, not capitalist. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's dumb. Just me as a product user, not me as like a economic systems person. I know that wouldn't work, but I think that where we're finding ourselves, we're finding ourselves in, in an economic negative state. Right yeah. now. That generally breeds innovation over time. Yeah. The AI thing is also happening at the same time. Unclear if that's going to like really amplify things, but there's a lot of like heat around it right now. Yeah. There's going to be something like this happening in the next couple of years. Do you think that these next couple of years are going to be like a very fertile ground for new digital stuff or combos of hardware, software, or whatever? And what are some things that you want to see open APIs maybe coming back? Yeah. The the thing I said at Kinference is that the web to whatever the original web stuff is all about scale and AI promises depth. And I think depth is what's missing. And that is also the home turf of the designer. I mean, I think a lot like about people are talking about, you don't need to do one-on-ones. Stop doing one-on-ones. People stop doing one-on-ones. They're not cool or something right now. One-on-ones come from a book called High Output Management. Andy Grove, arguably one of the greatest managers of all time. But the way that businesses are run, everything is so engineering centric because Basically, engineering was power starting from 2006 on. YC was focusing on engineers. You could, an engineer can tell you as a designer, no, it can't be done. They can gatekeep the creation of things based on what they want to do with their own time. This is not a critique of engineering, it's, but it's just one philosophy. It's peanut butter and I like jelly too. I like a little bit of both. And as a result, we have all these ways of running companies and operating and motivating OKR. All these things are measurable and engineering minded versus like other things that are harder to quantify don't succeed as well. But the things that are harder to quantify are the ones that win in the long run. I think that they they fail the short-term test, which is why they're so easy to kill. And it requires some amount of faith. And so everybody's favorite person, Steve Jobs, was somebody who happened to have that faith. They mimic his turtlenecks and his outbursts, but not his reverence for and belief in just having a point of view and executing that through design. And so anyhow, I got off on a tangent there. I did a talk probably in 2010 or something like that in Baltimore with Friends of the Web, their agency, cool folks. They do internal projects too, I think. And I was in Baltimore and I said, look, you're doing a startup. Ask yourself, what is a Baltimore startup? And what is a Baltimore business? And it could either be, what is a business that services Baltimore? Or if I'm from Baltimore and I use this product in California, I'm going to be able to tell that this was made by somebody in Baltimore. And you see that in music. There's Detroit Electro versus Berlin and things like that. And they have their own personalities. But for some reason, it's hard enough to jump into making your own business. That's a big leap. Very few people can do it. Then when they decide to do it, they give up all their personality, all that agency. And they say, okay, what are those dudes in Patagonia in this tiny little whatever town in upper north of, of California? How would they do it? 
there's all the personality evacuates the room because they're the vehicle for the funding. And so I think AI could empower smaller teams to go deeper with groups of people. I could imagine social networks that are smaller and more valuable. Like in, if we go to our parents, they would have a small group of close friends and then they would have like clubs. Maybe they're in this rotary club or they got a softball league or whatever. And that's this other type. We invented this other thing, which is this massive group of tiny connections, but have not yet, I don't think, repopulated that middle group. And when we do Kinference or Brooklyn Beta, we're trying to tap into that, this other group that's of a size where you can remember everybody's, at least their face, most of their names, and you can agree on things. And you're that person there. You're that person at Kinference, and maybe you have that same group, but it's your softball league, and you're that person there and things like that. So I can see those types of things are very exciting. Mm-hmm. The alternative is, I say this all the time, there's a study, I can't remember the one's name, but she did this study where she gave rats Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi and regular Coke or regular Pepsi. And the rats that were having the Diet Pepsi were gaining more weight than the ones who had the full sugar regular one. And the underlying theory is that they're getting the Diet Pepsi and it's activating the systems in their body that believe that they got sugar. But then those systems eventually realize, I didn't get any fucking sugar. So then they double down. They basically binge sugar to make up for this absence. And I think we've done that to people's sense of friendship, to their sense of self. They feel that they're getting these Diet Pepsi connections in the moment, but actually they're just creating a deeper and deeper deficit that they're trying to dig themselves out of. And so one of the things I've prioritized my whole life is friendships that are like really meaningful where I can be myself, I can say things, I can take risks, I can I know I'm safe and I orient so much of my life around that because to me that's it's like safety, power, medicine, it's all of those things, but these other things don't give you that. They give you the sense that you got it and then you're wondering, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this deficit? And it's because you've been tricked at a cellular level into believing this other thing. I think that many folks who have been in this industry for a while are jaded and they've lost their belief that they can do something really exciting. I think the Web3 crypto stuff is really complicated with respect to that. And I don't think that brought anybody any closer and it feels like folks sat that out a little bit. But I really think that whether it's AI or not, or just like just the general passing of time, there is a moment right now where I want people to say, We can do it. And specifically, I'm just very interested in the designer perspective. And it's not just because if if it was all designers all the time, I'd be very interested in the engineering perspective. Mm -hmm. If it was all designers and engineers and no businesses were working, I'd be very interested in the business perspective. But we just have one group whose perspective has been atrophied is Mills Baker, who wrote that Designer Duds article, maybe 2015. Mm -hmm. And it still rings true. Yeah. But I feel like the moment right now, everybody everywhere feels like social media is not doing a service to humanity. Everybody everywhere is looking for a solution. And this might be the time for people to step up and say, oh, yeah, we have some solutions. We can think empathetically about this. You know, and I think there's, this is maybe more controversial, but I do feel that we're also being driven apart from each other and we're punching left and right instead of up and down. And, you know, I've been pretty aggressive, I think, on this conversation about companies because I feel that large institutions are abusing and failing us. But they can't actually compete with a united front of people recognizing that actually most folks, minus sociopaths, are basically good. And belief systems are generally a result of past experiences 
and not always an indication of being like evil. And I think if we want, there's a, I think it's Seneca who has, if you want a clean city, clean your doorstep. And I think there's a feeling we, we were exposed to these large global problems and that can make you feel like, well, what can I even do? And I think acting locally and saying like, hey, we can in small ways sort of increase humanity around us. I think there's tons of potential there. Wikipedia is an incredible thing. Like, and it's like, mm-hmm. it stayed safe. It's like, it's unbelievable as like an actual product. And we have a humanity that's been connected and we could be lifting each other up. Uh, there's a music video for Blind Melon, um, No Rain. Do you know that music video with a little girl with a bee? It's a little girl. She's starting out at the beginning. She's tap dancing in a bee costume. Okay. Mm-hmm. This just looks silly. And then she goes out on the street and she's dancing in front of all these people to this song. And everywhere she goes, everybody's laughing at her. Two thirds of the way and she stumbles onto this field where everybody is in these bee costumes dancing around and she just joins in and meets. And like, to me, that's the potential of the internet is you could be somewhere in the middle of nowhere feeling totally alone and your people are out there. But we can, and you can actually just make your way to them and you'll feel more complete. You'll feel less lonely. That's where we want to try to get hits more and more often, as opposed to like random connections where we're all sort of laddering up again to the same influencer or the same aspirational lifestyle. It's no, we're going to help you find the true you inside of yourself. And then the similar people like that, that's like untapped potential. Everybody wants that. The top of the pyramid is self-actualization, self. It's not from other people. It's not going to come from outside. It's an inward looking process. And you need other people, I think, to help you look inward. It's not easy to do by yourself. That's the kind of stuff that I think we could enable with just like rethinking things. There's so many background tabs that just open up in my brain. One is I think that we are much more self-reflective than we have ever been. And even though we live in this current world where, you know, we are post-technology optimism and hopefully it'll come back a little bit. I think that the Web3 thing almost became a vehicle for smart, hungry people to extract money from a group of, you know, isn't it like the rounders quote that's like, if you don't know who's the sucker at the table, you're the sucker at the table? Yeah, that is a rounders quote. None of this makes sense to me. You know, It's unwelcoming, really challenging. I resisted it for a long time. The underlying principles are great. And in terms of like, it's democratic, it's open, there's all that stuff. But then the actual experience doesn't always line up with that. Of course, like design was an issue. You're just like, why? Like, why are we interacting with everything through wallets? Why aren't we like rethinking this just a little bit? The thing that got me, I read an article somewhere where somebody said Web one was all fun, no money. Web two is all money, no fun. And web three is money and fun. And there's tons of grifters, because I think a lot of people who could have made interesting offerings sat out because of the grifters. So it's sort of a nuanced problem. It's like, I don't want to go where those grifters are, but then how are we going to solve the problem of the grifters? But coming from a place where people will tell me that $2 a month is too much money for a digital product that took six months, 12 months, 18 months. It's like, so a place where like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. Cartoon ape is worth a hundred thousand. Digital art, digital work has value. Mm -hmm. And again, they're taking that away. The practitioners are having that taken away from them by saying your digital work is valueless. Business models are valuable. Network effects are valuable. Your digital work is throwaway. And I I really struggle to see out in the world very many companies that are indicating the opposite. So I like that in Web3, people were saying, no, digital has value. I don't think it ever achieved its promise. I also don't think it's gone. I don't think it's a mistake. Sorry, I don't think it's a coincidence that at the exact same time as a technology is coming along that will completely annihilate our ability to trust each other and our senses, there's this other technology that is about writing shit in digital stone. Mm-hmm. And so there's something interesting to me there. I can't figure out what that is, but I keep having this vision of 
in Lost, you know, where there's the dude dressed in black and one dressed in white. Like yeah. it's like there's sort of that. I'm like, okay, those two came around at the same time for some reason that I haven't figured out yet. But we might look back to Web three and be thankful for some of the things that are going on there when we're just being oppressed with this false reality. It is very hard right now on the internet to even know what's real and what's not anymore. And I mean, it's it's like which is all, that, you're talking fax machine shit right now. It's going to be so crazy. This conversation. Yeah, I'm not saying anything that you don't know, but I'm just going to say it anyhow. This conversation is data for somebody who wants to make a Cameron bot and a Michael bot. Yeah. And that Cameron 100%. bot and the Michael bot can come up, call somebody up and say the most vile shit that you ever heard. Yeah. And then, okay, I have to say, I didn't say it. You know, yeah. I have to say, I didn't say it. Uh, yeah. And then am I right or am I wrong? Are you going to believe me or not? If you like me, you'll probably believe me. If you don't, you won't. Yeah. Like it, the people who are bad actors are going to be really well positioned, destructive action. And so yeah. that's not going to be super fun. No, but I think on the other side, that also means that that great power is available to both the people that are the good actors and the bad actors. Yeah. And we're coming off of 15 years of the bad actors winning. So yeah. I, it's a rallying yeah. cry. I'm like, good actors, get your energy back. Watch Stellar got her groove back or whatever the fuck and get the energy going again. Let's like freaking get back in there and see what we can do. Because actually, this is a moment where those big companies are not safe. People mm -hmm. are sick of them. And there's technology that has a chance to really mess with them. Yeah. So let's see what we can do. I think there's yeah. really interesting opportunities. How do you feel about Apple and Google in this context? Because they're actually, they actually have more personal data yeah. than any of the other companies. One yeah. of them positioning themselves very much as the privacy like mogul, but then the other one yeah. kind of just... Yeah, I mean, I'm a realist. They're a privacy mogul because it screws over their competitors, right? Yeah. I don't think that they're a privacy mogul because yeah. they're big believers. And I, they say Steve Jobs believed in it. When it comes to Apple, Google, those companies are not as high on my villain list because they have a, a history of things that I think of as really valuable, really obvious value adds. I'm thankful for YouTube. I'm thankful for Gmail and Maps and those things being free. And I'm thankful for Search. I think that's good enough. And uh, I just look at them and I'm like, to be a really great company, Apple does and has a track record before there's a guy can't remember his name, but there's a guy who died who was super important over there. And then before he passed away, <laughs> before he passed away, they were doing kind of new stuff all the time yeah. um, and really pushing the boundaries. You know, that joke would work way better if I didn't already say his name. <laughs> I was like, who else died? Yeah, I know, because I had already said his name. So dumb. The uh, With Google, just seeing how much that they're not innovating, it's always interesting. You know, you look at these companies. And it's just interesting to see billions of dollars where they go and they go to like not much. I guess they, now we're seeing AI and I guess they have done some of that. Yeah. Uh, some of the self-driving car stuff is like yeah. kind of visible in, in some cities. Yeah. Yeah. And there's stuff that if I imagine myself taking a nap in a car on a seven hour drive to a destination that I want to go, I love the self-driving future. If I imagine what it means for like people and jobs and fulfillment, I don't know yeah. where I come down. I'm not a Luddite, but I do believe that not all progress is progress. So I own a car without electronics and it's both the bane of my existence and also extremely, extremely satisfying Yeah, at the same time. Yeah. And I'm, I am sad at a world where like we may not even be able to drive these things because the roads are now by law bound to only have autonomous vehicles on them or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a world that I'm a little worried about. I do about. love a good drive. I yeah, love a good like, like a good. Maybe there will be roads that are like off limits, and then they're like the artery roads, but then all the stuff around it. The joyriding roads. Yeah, yeah you're allowed. Cool. Yeah. 
So talking about the innovation piece for a second, like yeah. there, there was like the, the pre Steve days, the post Steve days, innovation levels. We, we have the vision stuff coming out now, yeah. the whole metaverse. We don't even have to talk about the metaverse. We do not. Yeah. Why do we want to be in a space when no. it's beautiful outside? Yes. One of the things that it does make me wonder now is, you know, there, there's something really interesting about the piece earlier where you, where you mentioned shareholder value, mm -hmm. which then also ties into the shareholder value at the, I'm going to say smaller level, but it's still gigantic, Figma being acquired by Adobe. Yeah. You can, it's a very personal question because I felt very much when I was at Instagram, I was like, we're going to take Facebook to task. Yeah. We're about to just go into this big ass battle. Yeah. And instead we got bought. Yeah. Even though the size of the transaction is way larger and TBD if it's going to happen because like EU just started their probe as well. There is this world where we can just have Adobe, yes. which surprisingly has been doing some really cool innovation recently. And there is this world where we can have two parties in the true capitalist free market because you, you need options Yeah, that can go toe to toe. And wouldn't it have been really beautiful to see Figma overtake Adobe? Similarly, yeah. it would have been really beautiful to see Instagram as its own thing and credit to the Snap folks for being their own thing. But who's going to turn out $20 billion? That's a pretty juicy offer. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's no fault there. But what's cool about the success of Figma is that they picked a super duper hard problem and built something that most people are not going to sit down and rebuild. Like they just went to work building a ton. It's just like a metric ton of code. There's just so much to do to get that right. And you have to look at somebody who's 100 miles in front of you and be like, I'm a turtle and they're yeah. a rabbit. I'm going to yeah. catch them. But it's like really hard to believe. And so the only reason Figma was possible was because Adobe was neglecting their community. And I'm not their community. I overhear. This is what I overhear, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. from listening to folks, people who are frustrated and disappointed and begging Adobe to listen to them. And they weren't. And first, Sketch came in and said, we'll do that. And their fatal flaw was to not be web-based, basically their only mistake. Then along comes Figma. And so it would have been cool to see how far they can push at that. But again, it must be clear that Adobe knows that because you don't pay $20 billion. What's Airbnb worth? Airbnb on the public market is probably- 80 or something. Yeah. You think it's 80? Yeah. I thought it was less than that. But you know, it's, it's it Figma, Figma. Yeah, look it up. I think 80, now that you say it, it feels right. But Figma is worth one-fourth of Airbnb, which is- yeah, shocking. 81 and a half. 81 and a half. Unlikely that Figma's worth that. All homes being rented out everywhere around the globe versus how many designers? Actually, we talked about this in the car on the way yeah. to my place. Is, well, it's not just designers in Figma. And this yeah. is why we have, I think, 12,000 people at this event or 11,000 people or something. Yeah, I, I really love this direction, actually. And what I love about it is that, to me, Figma didn't win because they had better tools at the start. Because they didn't. They were inferior to no. Sketch for quite a while, like probably 2018, 2019, when they yep. were like at parity. I think that Sketch actually started just saying, we're bootstrapped. Yep. And so it wasn't until Figma came along with a giant war chest all of a sudden that they were going to like take peel away from Sketch that Sketch was like, well, I guess we need VC money now mm. if we want to take on this battle. But what Figma had already done was they started as the multiplayer thing. And the multiplayer thing was useless when like you don't have all of the tools and all of the ergonomics that you're already used to like yeah. this. What all of a sudden happened is as soon as that tipping point happened, it just kept on going and it, it, the snowball just started rolling because like teams started switching. Like Facebook moved proper over to Figma, I think it's like 2019 or 2020. And, and I heard about it and I was like, 
thousands of designers are now going to be yeah. using this thing and all the stuff that they even internally invested in which were like sketch plugins that they side loaded and stuff yep. we're just going to go out the door they were going to rebuild them because like they're going to make this commitment but the most important part to me is you're not pointing to your Dropbox URL where that sketch file is. You're just saying, oh, yeah, hey, no come join me. Absolutely. Follow me through this thing as I'm going to tell you about what this is. And it made no sense until they hit that parody. But it was also not a threat until they hit that parody. For sure. And so there's going to be a point in time, hopefully, where there's another company like kind of that eventually does that to Figma or whomever. Could be. And I, and I think that I if bet Figma's pretty much got it unlocked for a long time. Yeah, a, a long, long time. But I'll say I I've never seen. I mean, I'm a manager, not a designer, and I've never seen anything like the speed of the shift from Sketch to Figma. It was mind blowing to me because I'll go into client presentations and I'll be showing work, and I was showing them in a Sketch file, and then almost a week later, it was like they're all Figma. It was like it was gone almost overnight. Somebody just one person on the team ripped the bandaid and then told everybody else, and then it was a done deal. It was wild to see. I mean, it's well-deserved in my opinion, but if there was a company that would want to get $20 billion, I'd say Figma would be one of them. So cool. Did a hard thing, did it really well, never gave up. Generally, like I think is pretty kind to the community, is super respectful of the community. That all takes good for me. But then when you look at, especially like the, a lot of the announcements today, which were A, hey, here's some ergonomics for designers with variables coming out. But then yeah. B, here's a whole dev mode because- yeah. 30% of people that use Figma aren't designers. We're going to bring you into the fray now. Yeah. That to me is, well, then why even go to Adobe? Yeah, for sure. It's got to be an appetite for the fight, right? Because we got a Godzilla for the Mothra. Like we could have seen a brawl go down, mm -hmm. but it's a brawl, right? Versus the other thing is it's quite chill. And Adobe does have some of the smartest people I know are Adobe. And I say the same, it's like, 100%. you know, and so you could easily imagine yourself being a part of that sort of space and saying, yeah, this is a good group. Um, the other thing is I was talking to Tyler, who I was with when I met you on the Figma floor. He was like, well, they're not trying to appeal to the 30% of developers who are using it. They're trying to appeal to like the 70% who are not. Exactly. It's like, oh, you yeah. know, it's a great way to make more money. Let's get all the developers on here too. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it would have been really interesting to see that play out. So if they get blocked by the EU or somebody like that, and then they have to throw down, it would be really interesting to see. And I don't think, I think it becomes existential for Adobe in that vertical. I mean, Adobe yeah. is a pretty broad creator. They have like photography, film. They have so many things and they're obviously a very capable company, but I would prefer to just see a brawl. I don't know, just to see capitalism at work. You know, like, let's see what competition UFC looks like. 272, yeah. Adobe, Figma. Yeah. You know, yeah. we got somebody in the welter or the whatever featherweight class versus yeah. the heavyweight class and let's see what happens. The thing you're describing too, where they're not a threat until the threat is famous book called The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. And that's where... You're not a competitive threat, so the big people don't look at you and you're taking the parts of their business that they don't care about until yeah. you start taking the parts they do care about and then it's too late. Yeah. And so Adobe, you go, oh, I'm going to buy it. But I bet Adobe, like you, you and you're not the only person to say that Adobe's got some new moves recently with all this AI stuff and things like that. So maybe even they're thinking to themselves, do we need to do this? We're assuming that interfaces are going to get created in the same way that they are right now versus maybe all interfaces are going to be created through voice. You know, that's mm -hmm. not out of the realm of possibility. And a canvas that is connected to voice, many people could make that if the AI tooling is available. So maybe there will be a, a new thing where you're like, okay, and the Figma folks will feel really good about having gotten out of there underneath the gun before basically that style of work went away. Yeah. So here I'm going to push back because I, I really, I really like that train of thought because to me is 
Adobe doesn't have a lock on digital no. UI at all anymore. No. And so they're effectively not a threat. And to like really get back into the game, just like a new AI UI generator isn't going to bring the whole community back. Because the whole community of Figma, and, and I think the thing that you mentioned about Tyler, about that, that the other like 70% or like the other, it's even more because like the ratios of designers to engineers are probably like one to eight or something, hopefully yeah. in a healthy situation. One of the things is that they also said you can do a bunch of this variable stuff yeah, and a bunch of this dev stuff in viewer mode. Zero dollars. Yeah. So they're just entrenching the mode of dollars that they already have. Instead of like just like adding, they're adding some incremental stuff, which is like what they said, but like the big dollar amount isn't really going to change that much because they're playing a scale game all of a sudden instead of the depth game that they did with the designers for a while, right? And so what intrigues me is this, yes, I think Adobe is going to get a deeper relationship with the creatives that do video photography and like really level the playing field between studios that have large armies of people that will do touch up and will do change the sky and draw on photos and something like the way that Instagram took the agencies out of the middle and said, hey, photographers are super creative. Go find them here. Boom. You know, you have a whole army of photographers that are getting really impactful work. Yeah. That is where Adobe has the shot and they want that extra bit because that extra bit is like exponential shareholder value effectively. Whereas I think Figma at a certain point are already entrenched enough, not because their tool is good and they're obviously making it better. And they showed some insane stuff at, at the keynote. I was like, why do they need like a, a 10,000 plus people conference? And then I saw the keynote and I was like, yeah, you deserve a 10,000 plus people mm. conference. And like you really like showed some, some really cool stuff. Like the thing about that is to me, even if an AI competitor comes along, they're already like a big enough Goliath to deal with a bunch of more Davids right now. Yeah. Which is which is when I'm just like, I mean, of course, it's $20 billion. Like, it's a giant sum of money. But I am definitely still here for that brawl if sure. we get to it. It would be fun to see the brawl. What I would say, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look downstream for your David and Goliath point, and then I'm going to look upstream at Adobe. Okay, so that David and Goliath concept. I'm not saying this is true of Figma versus a new AI way of doing things. But if the innovator's dilemma thing was playing out and you were at Figma, you would say exactly what you said right now, which is, I'm a Goliath. What's this little fucking David going to do to me? Yeah, um, sure. And it's because David is ill-defined. Nobody knows he's got some fucking tiny magical rock that he can just, I guess, <laughs> throw in really good places. But uh, so you're sitting there big and comfortable and it's no big deal. Um, so if I look downstream at what an AI version of creation can do, we're talking about a fundamentally, you have to use a cheesy word like a paradigm shift in the creation of this stuff, and that could look harmless and be lethal. So that's downstream. Upstream, you if you're Adobe, just like business tactics, you have a Microsoft playbook. So Microsoft has Windows, Excel, or sorry, yeah, Windows, Excel, Word, all these things. They go to Netscape and they go, you know what? We're going to give Internet Explorer away for free. They got in trouble yeah. for that, but that's not. I mean, the they got thing. in trouble for that ten years later. Yeah, and you don't get in trouble for that kind of thing anymore. They don't seem to get in trouble yeah. for that kind of thing anymore. And so Adobe, because they have all of these verticals, they could decide that digital is lead gen. And they're like, you know what? We think all digital people are eventually going to become photographers or blah, 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 blah. And so you could, if you were Adobe, make everything that Figma has, including whatever they announced today, and say, that's free. That's a free thing forever. That's our welcome mat to you. 
but we also have all these other areas to monetize or we come up with other ways to monetize you later. Other things So like Figma only has the one, they have Figma and they have Fig Jam. So they have the one audience, mm -hmm. but Adobe has more audiences, which means you can cut off one head off that Hydra and but it's still like a multi-headed dragon. So I think it's not a foregone conclusion who would win what. From a product standpoint, what I would want is the person who cares the most about the end consumer and makes the best product wins. But if you compare Slack to Microsoft Teams, it's another great example of that not working. Microsoft is a Hydra and they can say, well, you know what? Teams is this thing that we yeah. just fits in with everything else. And Slack, again, they sold. So there's probably a narrative where they're probably good timing in them selling because the com competition's pretty ruthless for that stuff. I don't know though. Yeah, I think it gets me back to the point of, okay, let's talk about a new wave of things that, that would be interesting to us Yeah. to see because we spoke a bunch about consumer and we spoke a bunch about kind of B2B right now. Yeah. One, one thing in there is for me as well, the core for me about the fact that I believe that we live in an age of bad software yeah, and not just extremely bad software yeah, because terrible. everyone has access to it, and it is and actually Google Maps is one of the key winners still because yeah, it's and great. Apple wasn't able to beat them. I think that's super yeah. fascinating. Just that Google Maps is actually a really well designed product. Yeah, yeah, and the amount of investment that Apple has done into Maps now. Yeah, I I like it because I can just ask Siri a question, which also shows you the antitrust problem because I don't think that you can ask Siri a question into Google Maps yet. Sure. Yeah. CarPlay, the whole thing. Yeah. But on the, on the other side, it's also, it's good enough <laughs> for most yep. cases. Yeah. So I'm like a 50-50 split between Apple Maps and Google Maps now, mm. which brings me to, there are so many verticals and so many interesting areas where we, well, let's see, like I have a bunch of old stuff on Foursquare. Yeah. Atrophying away. I have a bunch of stuff in like my Google Maps, like starred list. Totally. Just sitting there. And I really wish that I just had a little passport or a little notebook oh, yeah. of places oh, yeah. that I own that are on my computer locally that are synced somewhere for safety Yep, that I can send to a friend whenever they say, hey, I'm going to Amsterdam. Where should I go? Absolutely. I mean, Chris Shifflett, that was his, when he was working on, we were working on Gimme Bar, he was working on a product called Map Along. This was 2011. Yes, I remember this. And it was delicious for places. And yeah. These were place marks and you would have your map and you could zip it around. And for whatever reason, people have never done that in Google Maps. I think there's just, it's just buried or something. But I still believe that's a great idea and it is incomplete. I think it's entirely frustrating that I can't even, that I, I show up somewhere and I can't see the trail that my friends were on mm -hmm. um, when they came here. And, and if you come into my hometown, I would love for you to be able to see all the things that, that we do. Um, Actually, the thing that we're going to do in the Kinference app is video placemarks. Because what I was trying to think about is what can we do for a, we're calling it like a social network, which is a slow yeah, social network. Yeah. And I don't want you to chat every day. I don't want your time all the time. But can we build something together? And the idea is you'll be able to leave a video story at a restaurant that you like or a concert event you've been to. And somebody could come later on. Somebody from in the community can come later on. And be like, oh, this is where Michael was. And it's like, yeah, geocaching for like your experience, basically. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But we did a little prototype of something like that. And I could show you a bunch of videos of the fictive kin office over a five year period. And it's really cool to go back and watch. And so the story of a location over time is super interesting. This this Potrero Hill, the story of this neighborhood over a hundred years 
it's wild. You know, yeah. if you if we could sit here and watch a hundred years of videos of this was going on and this is going on, this is when the dock workers live, whatever it's going to be, we would just be it would just be awestruck. And so it'd be cool to start that sooner rather than later because that's the kind of cool communal documentation that would be really valuable to everybody. You're like bringing me back to the reason why I just love maps on Instagram very early on. And I was really mm-hmm. into the concept of like spatial awareness of yeah. like media. And also there's a couple of these projects where I like the, I think 1940s, New York, like where you can oh, just like, those. yeah, you can just yeah. like go on, on Google maps and like, they just like overlay a bunch of street view there. Absolutely. There's a couple of months ago, there was a new taco place where uh, a couple of friends and myself, like sometimes do taco Tuesdays. Yeah. And we were like, this place has only been here for a year. What used to be here? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, like street view actually goes back in certain places that are you know, more densely populated to like 2006, 2007. Huh. And what we saw was this venue had turned over four or five times, mm. but the Boost Mobile or the Cricket Mobile next door was just there and <laughs> stayed just there. Yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> anyway, we've talked for a bit. Before we go, mm-hmm. first of all, I've always admired your ability to be very candid and clear and to be thoughtful, but both stern in your opinions about the situation and the way that you see the world. Yeah. And I really enjoy that you actually also brought this to this conversation. And so before we go, really what I want to give you the stage is what are some things that are really top of mind for you that you want to like make sure that we all leave with? Well, I'll say thank you. And then I'll say that if I play back everything I talked about, it was like potentially overly critical and grumpy, but it's only because I don't hear these conversations happening. I hear grumpiness about other things that aren't immediately practical. And what I would try to like highlight for people, which is not related to anything we talked about, but the advice I give most often is that if you're unhappy where you are, you can make a change. Like the stories that you are telling yourself and that you are being told generally are untrue and highly confining. You're sort of better than who you think you are. And I, you know, I, I have a, I have two sides of my personality one is like a pessimist in this mm-hmm. way that you're hearing some of it because I get frustrated, but it, it actually comes from an underlying optimism. Yeah. And so I'm not upset at the state of the world. I'm upset at missed opportunities. And mm-hmm. I just see the web as this thing that could be making us better, happier, more fulfilled. And then it's the opposite. I think this is a recurring story of media, but like, you know, in my day to day Carly Ayers, who we saw, I think yeah. she asked me once, she's like, well, what do you think your brand is? Which is a, a strange thing to answer. And I said, I think if it's anything, it's probably like older brother. Just trying to look out for folks and be like, you know, keep everybody honest. And in that capacity, when I talk to people, I think the thing that most often people need to hear is that you're in an invisible box that you don't need to be in. You can do anything that you want to do and not in a cheesy way, just like the risks that you perceive really are not there. And if you actually sit down and spell them out, you go, well, what would happen if I did this? And then what would happen if I did that? And what happened if I did that? And I know this day and age, it's very easy for somebody to throw out and be like, well, you have privilege. It's like, okay, yeah, probably. But um, dial it into your level of privilege. Like, you know, you can absolutely take more risk than you think that you can for your level of privilege. I would just say this is an actual moment that we have not seen since potentially 2008 where everything is up for grabs. There is absolutely no one who is safe, including everybody who is telling you that they can see the future. They cannot. Everyone who tries to prognosticate about the future, they're going to prove themselves to be wrong. So you are in a really interesting position to follow your own lights 
and your own sense of self and say, well, what can I make and who can I make it for? Um, and so I think there's just something cool about that where everything is up for grabs. I, I think like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, they all are trying to own this new stuff and it's just too powerful. They cannot own it. It's like Spider-Man with the venom suit. Can't yeah. do it. It's good for a while, but <laughs> it's not do good. It. Can't do it. So you're going to get turned over. <laughs> That's the title. Yeah. Spider-Man with the venom suit. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your day because you know, we're at a conference and there's a lot going on and you made this a priority and I really appreciate you for this. It's a treat. I really enjoyed this. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening. As a Dutch person in California, I really appreciate Cameron's mixture of realism, optimism, and his call to arms. If this was your first episode and you liked it, make sure to check out some other ones as well. And if you want to keep in touch, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And I'll see you next week.